Hi, Chris. How are you? Yeah, good evening, Rod. Here we go again, back in the shed, and it's Sunday night. It is Sunday night. This is a, a much preferable recording night to doing it on. When did we do it last week? Wednesday night, Thursday night, something like that. It was not Sunday or Monday, which is what we usually try and shoot for. So no, we're back to Sunday, which I think is good. Yeah, I quite liked it. I was looking at Overcast. But, uh, I added a new podcast this week, and I could see it next to ours was usually Monday mornings. I thought, yeah, it is usually Monday mornings, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to have to be next week because I'm on a holiday next Monday for a few days. You lucky devil. Only London for a few days with the family. Well, it's half term for us. Oh, yeah, of course. In April, I'm off to Boston in the United States for a conference. And that will be, we'll have to think about that quite carefully because I think the time difference could catch us it. Yeah, I'm equally away in April with the family over Easter in Futaventura. And I'm not planning to take any tech with me. Well, either we're going to have to store some up in advance or either of us is going to have to find a guest to step in when we're not here. Yeah, well, yeah, let's give that some thought near the time, maybe. I think so. Anyway, here we are, episode 56 for the 12th of February 2022, and we can dive straight into follow-up, because I don't think we've got very much. Yeah, and I've not done either of them, so that was a very quick follow-up. So my follow-up was, watch the bleeped version of Taskmaster and make some new icons, and I've been a bit rubbish, so apologies on my part. What can I say? Two things to do, and you haven't done either of them. I got distracted, but we're coming to that later. All right, fair enough. I think I, I know what your distraction is, so I'm willing to give you a pass on that one. Straight into the news then. News. So what, what's this first one? Teams free for free or something? Well, I just thought this was a fascinating little thing from Microsoft. Talking about Microsoft Teams free data won't transfer over to Microsoft Teams brackets free. And it's just the most confusing headline I've ever seen. And it's deliberate on the part of Ars Technica because... Microsoft offered a free tier of Teams, but they're going to take away the free tier of Teams, but they'll give you another different free tier of Teams in brackets, which I think has one hour's recording or something in it. But none of your data in your previous free tier of Teams will transfer over to the new tier of free Teams. I nearly commented earlier that we should take this out because this isn't something we should be talking about, but it's so stupid we should talk about it. So I'm with you on this. I love Teams. Consider it's a newish product for Microsoft, and Microsoft do this all the time. They move all the SKUs and everything around and change the pricing, and they never make it easy. I just don't understand why they make their life so complicated. So it's stupid, and there's too many tiers of Teams. I kind of get why they're doing it, because obviously they want it to be prevalent, and it is in the corporate space, but Teams has not reached into the home user space, and I guess that's where they're trying to get with some of this. Yeah, I mean, I do find it interesting, because we're corporately we obviously have all the microsoft stuff so we can use teams as part of our our enterprise license for the university however we pay for zoom over and above teams corporately as part of the university because nobody likes teams it you know when, it, when we deal with other agencies particularly pharmaceutical companies they only use teams because obviously that's what they get with part of their enterprise thing so it's interesting that sort of clash of of academia and you know, the more enterprise space. I, th- I think Teams is an appallingly bad product. I think it's very badly written. I don't like the way they try and shoehorn it into everything. It feels like they're pushing on the boundaries of antitrust again for me slightly with Teams when they bundle it in with Windows and they encourage you to use it as part of startup. And then, you know, it, it's back to the old browser space, whereas it comes with the operating system. I'm not very keen on that. It should stand or fall by its, by its own sort of merits. You know, you use it more than I do. Maybe you're slightly more given to thinking it's a better product than I am. But, you know, I think it's where you come from. And for me, Zoom is a better product. Mm, I'm a bit mixed on it. So it's interesting you're saying how they're bundling Teams with everything. They're also bundling everything inside Teams. So 
if you go to Teams and go open an app inside Teams, you can open up Word. It's like, well, no, I've got Word for Word. Why do I need Word within Teams? So I think they are going to struggle a little bit all round on, on, on the whole antitrust thing. I like in the corporate space. I think it's very good. The iPad app has always been a little wanting, if I'm honest. It's often behind Windows, obviously. I probably use the iPad app all day, every day. And I'm in and out of meetings. I wish we'd do picture in picture. There was a glimmer of it a few weeks ago and then it's disappeared again. They do seem to be iterating though, to be fair. And since the pandemic, it has come a long way. I hate Google Meet with a burning desire. And Zoom, other than talking to you on it once a week, I probably don't use Zoom enough to really comment fairly on the pros and cons of it against Teams. But for us, Teams works. And you know what? Nearly everybody's on Teams in the corporate space. So it is nice to actually use something, which is a bit akin to email in a way. I'll just send you a Teams invite because I know you've got Teams. I know you're set up for it. And off we go. And in our workspace, everybody's got it. They've got it on their mobile devices. They've got it on their Windows devices. And to just do a quick quick call with video cameras on is so easy and is our culture at work. It's It has been a game changer for us. It's, it, the adoption's far better than what Skype for Business was, which admittedly was pre-pandemic. So for us, it, it does work. You saying that Teams is like email really bothers me because... It, you know, the embeddedness of email and the fact you can have it on any platform, that makes me quite uncomfortable that a company Microsoft sort of scale, you'd view it in the same sort of way, the, the ubiquitousness of email as being Teams. Oh, don't like that. In the corporate space, I think it is. Everybody's more or less on Teams and the outliers are the ones on Google or Zoom. And they're all, and literally every time you join a Google meeting or a Zoom meeting, they go, we're moving to Teams soon, don't worry about it. And so I think Microsoft have got it in the corporate space. I'm not saying the best client won, but they've managed to largely sew up the corporate space. Yeah, I mean, academia is not the corporate space, but it's lots of desktops. I mean, the NHS make big use of Teams as well because of what comes with the desktop. So I understand it, but I don't like that. It's it's sort of sleepwalking into mediocrity. I don't disagree with that. And we need Zooms, possibly Google Meet, to keep Microsoft moving forwards and innovating because... Otherwise, you end up back with IE6 again, and they were bad days. Yeah, and I did see this week, although it's not in the show notes, that Skype actually, Kate, was is now available for Apple Silicon chips. So it's taken, what, three years for Microsoft to make a version of the client suitable for the current generation of Apple's hardware? If they take this sort of approach to things like Teams, it's not driving any platform forward. Do you know what? I logged onto my dad's PC today, and he had Skype on. I was like, why is he got Skype on this thing? And you know what? I was like, actually, yeah, it probably predates the pandemic. And he since had an iPhone and obviously we just wouldn't use Skype anymore. But in the old times, that was the way of video calling mum and dad. So Skype though, surely that does just need to be forced over into Teams. They did it in the workplace with Skype for Business. They forced you onto Teams. I don't get why they haven't done it for Skype for home. Anyway, interesting times, I think, for the sort of collaborative video market. And I do understand why they're trying to make it part of a platform. If you don't have Word and the one you use inside of Teams or SharePoint or whatever it is that's built into Teams, embedded in some way, shape, manner or form, then, you know, fair enough, I guess. Anyway, it's it's a ridiculous thing and they should resolve the free freeness of it as they push home users onto it anyway. Yes, agreed. And I guess they're also trying to push small businesses onto it. I guess that's what this free tier is for as well. And then as that business grows, they then have to pay for it. Yeah, the first taste is free, isn't it? That old uh, chestnut. That old, that old chestnut. Anyway, next one. What have we got? We've got an iOS clone. Well, Apple saying that the UK Competitions Market Authority is trying to make iOS a clone of Android, which is very overblown language from Apple. So this is the story about the CMA wanting them to make iOS more open, to allow side loading, to have different browsers and all the rest of it, which we've talked about repeatedly on this show before. And 
Apple are pushing back saying you just want to make us a clone of Android. But it's obviously overblown language on Apple's part. Nothing in the, and we're gonna we've got another story later on from Japan, which is in a very similar vein. It's yeah, pa- I thought it was sorry. No, go on. I thought, I thought it was interesting and I get why Apple's used the language it's used. And then obviously the CMA, so the Competition and Markets Authority, wants there to be competition between Android and iOS. And right now, I do, don't disagree that iOS is too locked down, but I can kind of see where Apple's coming from in that, look, if you want the lockdown one that's uber safe and secure, you, you, you pick the Apple. And if you want to be able to do more with it, maybe have a cheaper device, but but it's more open, you go and get the Android device. So, so there is that they are quite different businesses, which is quite good. So I can understand why Apple are, are doing this, but I don't think that where they're hanging on in this story about the, the browser, for example, we spoke about it last week. That's not making it a clone of Android. That's just allowing the browser companies to actually have their own engine inside there, which I think is definitely the right thing. I think sideloading is the right thing. What the CMA aren't doing is going, you must make it look like Android and operate exactly like Android. They're just setting out, I guess, a baseline to which they should conform, but then they need to innovate on top of it. Yeah, and I saw two other stories this week that both Google and Mozilla are spinning up versions of their browsers with their own engines and not based on WebKit. But, you know, they're spinning up one on Firefox's engine and Chrome's, which is called Blink, I think, these days is the underlying engine of, of Chrome. So they obviously feel there's something about to change with all the sort of legislation and things that are going on that will let them bring, you know, their browsers and alternative platforms uh, to it. i got to say, the sideloading, I don't think, has killed the Play Store. It's not like everybody sideloads onto Android. Uh, no, and you can, to a degree, sideload on your phone if you want. You just need to run Xcode and, and deploy and deploy the app that way. It, it, it's not for everybody, obviously. And, and Apple have done a bit in iOS 16, so you can turn on developer mode and things. See, it feels like they're starting to put the temp poles in place ready for this. Well, they got to. You know, they can see which way they're going to get forced to. And them sort of trying to get out slightly in front of it before the law comes down and says you must do it in this way, which will be even more restrictive then, you know, it's it's not before time. And I'd like to see a bit more competition on the platform. I think it'd be good for Apple to sort of push Safari forward and, and what's capable in the App Store forward and, you know, maybe speed of review or what sort of apps get through. I mean, we've talked about this endlessly as well, but this is just another interesting sort of play in the whole game that the CMA, which seems to have an undue amount of power, I've got to say, considering we're talking about Activision Blizzard last week and how that would impact upon, you know, Microsoft and their merger with that company or their purchase of that company. It's amazing that little old UK managed to have this amount of power in the market, really. It, yeah, I completely agree with you on this. And um, it's back to that international law thing again of how does this actually all play out internationally? But it's, it's, it is good, and I think we'll end up in a better place for it. And everybody's got to have a competitor. Otherwise, you end up dominant, and you end up just shoehorning, doing your own thing, which is unhealthy, in my opinion. Fair enough. I think we've said what we can say about that. Next story is one I thought you'd like an awful lot because it's about matter again, that wonderful technology that is matter trying to push into the healthcare space. Well, that's again, to use the word overblown for the second time in one podcast, the Connectivity Standards Alliance, who is the group behind matter, has announced that it's putting together a working group to build a standard certification program for health and wellness technology. So that's not healthcare technology, that's health and wellness, things like trackers and things like that, I would guess. So Internet of Things for health-related things. What do you think of this story? So is this what, from his scales? From a Fitbit? What's this for? Well, I know a bit about 
connectivity inside of hospitals and stuff like that. And there are, unsurprisingly, lots of standards for con connecting healthcare equipment together. So you've got things like HL7, which is a communication standard, so you can push out from a ventilator to your patient administration system to say an admission's happened, or laboratory systems know that somebody's been admitted in A&E and to expect bloods, and somebody's been discharged from Ward 1 to Ward 4, so don't send the results to Ward 1. That kind of stuff is all actually built into healthcare systems. So... But what doesn't talk quite so well together is, you know, an isolated at the end of the bed heart monitor, for example. So when you wheel a patient down a corridor and go and connect them back up to something, it, all that doesn't work wirelessly. So it may be that kind of stuff, but that's a whole world of hurt because, you know, you've actually got regulators like the FDA and the MHRA in the UK who look at how safe these things are. And there is a big unregulated space in, in, in things like Fitbits and the rest of it. Where does the fitness part of it end and the healthcare part of it begin? Do you trust the ECG that comes out of your Apple Watch? Is it good enough for a physician to look at? I don't think this is that. I think this is more, you know, your Fitbit will is compatible enough with your Apple Watch that if you switched from one to another, there'd be a certain amount of standardization between them. That's the way I read this anyway. All I'm going to say is, shouldn't matter finish sorting the home out before they move on to the next product because they haven't done the home yet which is what it was all about meant to launch october november last year we're now in february nobody knows what matter is and nobody's seen any benefit of it so whilst i want i want to believe in matter and i want to love matter and i was really looking forward to it because i thought it would mean i can get some cool new gadgets for my house and i've bought nothing and it's just frustrated and angered me that it's such a mess is the word i'm going to use without swearing and i'd worry if they can't do the home why would they be going after healthcare day which is a lot more important and a lot more sensitive so this just worries me if i'm honest yeah i'd agree with this that my sort of reading a matter and again i think i mentioned this last week in the podcast there is one journalist for the verge who's been trying to put matter devices throughout his house and they keep falling, they keep breaking, they don't work, they default to Bluetooth, they're not, you know, they switch things on, things take longer to happen. It sounds like a, an absolute disaster, actually. You can't have something like that in, you know, in, in a healthcare environment or where you're depending on that data to be available to you at that point. It's bad enough in the home, frankly. You want your light bulbs to come on when you tell them. And it's a bit slow now, but it works fairly reliably in my, in, in, in my experience. You don't want steps backwards. Once they've all agreed in a standard, maybe this is why Apple couldn't roll out the the, the major update in 16.2, was it? 16.1, whenever the big matter upgrade was meant to happen and they'd pull it back. The rumor is it's coming in 16.4, but if it's that much of a disaster... I hope they do something because I want to add my new doorbell onto it and I can't add any any new devices at the moment and it's so frustrating. So yeah, matter in the home of just yeah massive anticlimax. This is a big worry they need to fix one and do it well. If they'd have done matter and they really nailed it, you'd be like, yes, brilliant. We're now going to go do the same for health data. Why wouldn't we do that? But I'm a big believer in you, you, you've got to go on your past work. And if you've got a bad rep, you shouldn't go on and do something else even more critical with it. So I think we need to keep an eye on this one, but hopefully they, they don't rush into it. Well, I quite like the example in the article. If a fall happens with a smartwatch, which contacts the emergency services and alerts your contacts, when the paramedics arrive, the smart lock would be able to let them in. Oh my gosh, there's a lot to go wrong there. That's just fraught with danger and... <laughs> No, I can't get in the door. Oh yeah, I can't connect. I need to move closer, but I've yeah. fallen over. I, I didn't um, fall anyway. I'm on a roller coaster. You know, it, there's a whole bunch of stuff there that's a problem. It's fine though, because smart locks, you can just open them without needing the key anyway, which I say quite upset because I really want one and I really want it to work. And they had one in the Apple store the other week, but I looked at it and thought, no, don't look at it. 
because you know it's going to be rubbish. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, that's enough on that. Stay tuned for more Matter disappointments or hopefully the odd good story about Matter as well. But I agree with you. We haven't seen much yet. Yeah, it'll be interesting to fast forward, say, 12 months from now and go, actually, where will Matter be in the home in 24, February 24? You know, will will it just basically be what we've got today, but it's just we've had to buy new things that cost more money and they operate a marginally quicker than what they do today? Yeah, what a colossal waste of time. Next story, I think, is an interesting one if you share your Netflix password with other members of your household. So Netflix, on a family account, allow you to have four, possibly five members in your household watching watching things at the same time. Depends on the tier you're on. The super cheap tier, obviously, they don't let you do this. And I, I re- hadn't really appreciated I I subscribed to Netflix when it first came to the UK and never thought about it again. It has increased over the years. I do have a family account. I do have the one that's 4K, I think, is, is another sort of one of the ones within it. But this is a new rule that's appearing in some countries that if you're away from your home IP address for more than 31 days, then you're excluded. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. So does your daughter need to come home every 31 days to keep her account active at uni? It looks like that might be the case in the future, yeah. Wow. Or you VPN back into mum and dad's house. Well, that would obviously be an option. I could put WireGuard on her Mac and she could she could do that very thing. But it feels a bit unnecessarily sneaky to me, really. You know, we do pay for a family account. She is still in the family. She's, I suppose she is living away from home, but only temporarily. She will move back before she eventually goes off and get a job. And at which point when she starts earning, fair enough, she should have her own Netflix account. But for the moment, she's still part of my household. Yeah, I was just thinking this through because I was thinking like with Apple Music. So I obviously share that with my family. I'm happy to do that forever but because I love Apple Music. But when, yeah, when the kids grow up and move out, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. So, so this has never been an issue for me. My children have got some iPads, but they never leave the house and they're, they're far too young, obviously, to, to go out on their own. And I've never really shared my Netflix password because I I usually have it so intermittently. I usually buy it for a month at a time and, it, and then cancel it. But I've had it for the last year with Sky because it, as it all gets bundled in with Sky. Now, I don't know what Sky did, but they did something pretty good that meant basically if you had Sky, you got Netflix for not a lot of money, basically, on top. And it's the 4K one. Yeah, it feels like Netflix are clamoring for every dollar. But I guess they've been too lenient and now they're trying to adjust the balance. What happens if you go away for, a, for six months? So I find this a bit of an odd one why it's been tied to the house, whereas it needs to be tied to the user. And if they're paying for a family account like you are, it needs to be tied to those users. Surely that's the right thing. But what do you think? Well, I'm, I was that was the point I was exactly about to make. If you're if you're in a marine engineer and you go off to sea for, you know, four to six months or even you know two months or something like that, does your account expire because you've had the gall to go off to sea? You can't access it when you land on port in Hong Kong. You know, thirty two days later. I don't feel to thought this through. Yeah, like I said, it feels a bit nickel and dimey. They clearly are clamoring for a, for every last cent because there are so many streaming services now. I can imagine some people are cutting some of them and, and I would understand that because I would do the same. But mm, I don't know. I've, I don't think they have fully thought out. But they must have the data. They must have some idea and they must be doing some big data on this to go, right, we can see that is Rod, that's his family. They're probably legitimate. And then that's Dave over there, but Dave is sharing it with all of his mates who are clearly not his family. They, they must be doing some some clever stuff on this. But think how much we all move around and things. And um, what happens though if I, I pay for Netflix and I barely use it, so I don't sign in at home. But then when I go and stay in a hotel and, and you message me a link to a new Netflix show and I log in, but because I haven't logged in at home for the last thirty days, I then can't watch it. I don't know. I, it, 
yeah, it feels a bit old school. It feels a bit like Sky, where they used to really limit how you could watch Sky content, and they're still not on top of it, but it feels like that. It's probably not even that. If you think, what if you're just a mobile user? What if you're always on your phone, you tether your laptop to your phone as you were, you're a salesman, you're working anywhere in the UK or wherever, America, you change states all the time. You know, I suppose you have the one paying for the account, but if you're the primary holder and your family's still at home, how does that work? You know, it's it just, I agree with you. You would think they can maybe do something clever with this, but I'm not 100% convinced of any large media company's ability to make those kinds of distinctions. All they really want is for everybody to pay is more money than they are. And I agree with you. The password sharing is a bit wrong. If Dave's sharing with his five mates and they're spread across the UK, then that's not right. But if Dave's family is spread across the UK and you know most of them are under the age of 18 and Dave's a salesman, Dave should be, you know, says like the traveling salesman problem, we're going to hit computer science in a minute. You know what I mean? This, this, it's it just, I'm on edge of, of how happy I am with this. I do understand Netflix's reason to do it. Because frankly, if I looked at all my subscriptions, Netflix is probably the first one to go at this point. There's not enough compelling content on there for me to want to, you know, stick with it. And that's why I've always had it for a little bit, got rid of it. And like I said, I've only kept it because they've partnered with Sky. Yeah, I don't want to say on this one. I think I would be interested to see if there's any fallout from it and actually will this end up harming them more and will they actually lose more revenue from it? That'll be interesting to see because maybe Dave will go, well, actually, if my five mates can't log in, I'm not using it that much. I thought it was just helping all my mates out and it, I felt good about it. So I wonder if this will actually hurt them. Yeah, piracy goes back up as a consequence, maybe, yeah? Yeah, potentially. Possibly. Anyway, interesting times for Netflix, and possibly my daughter in, in 32 days' time. Moving on, the next story is back to what we were talking about before, where the UK's Competitions Markets Authority were looking at Apple and making this ruling. Japan is now lining up to say the same sort of thing. They're saying they think Apple and Google have an oligopoly, try saying that after a couple of points of lager, in mobile OS and app markets. They... Nation's Fair Trade Commission distributed a market study report for mobile, mobile OS and mobile app distribution and found while Symbian OS is still measurable presence in Japan. Really? Symbian OS still has measurable presence in Japan? Apple and Google utterly dominate markets for smartphone, mobile OSs, app stores, and even smartwatches. What do you think of this? I think, if I remember correctly, Symbian OS is what our Nokia's used to run back in the day. Have I got that correct? Yep. Right, okay. I'm amazed Symbian OS is still measuring on, on the OS scale, I guess. So surprised by that, but surely it can't be a surprise to anybody that anybody would even need to run a study or, or a commission to work out that Apple and Android have got the monopoly here, or the, I can't even pronounce the word, oligopoly. Oligopoly. Surely you don't need to pay anybody to work that out. You just need to go on a tube and look around and go, oh yeah, everybody's, everybody's got one of two phones. So not a surprise, but I'm not sure what you're going to do about this. Microsoft tried and they tried hard. And I, I thought Microsoft, to be fair to them, Whilst wasn't for me, at least they were doing something different in that space with their, the way their OS looked. I mean, and they had a failed start, didn't they? Just trying to put regular Windows on a mobile device and then doing the big text version. They had a stab at it, but it didn't work. So I'm not surprised, but do you need more than two? I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack there, isn't there? Windows CE, I think it was Windows CE, was the one on the mobile phone. That, that was the original one. And then there was Windows Mobile. Yeah. When it was not with the Windows Start button at the bottom. But they had such a head start, such a potential head start on that market. I remember seeing, I think it was an O2 device that was sort of vaguely touchscreen with a start thing in the bottom left-hand corner. And yeah, they were only fighting really Symbian and BlackBerry at that point. But they were the dominant hardware vendor on the desktop. There was a lot of business people just got one of those because it was the Microsoft, the phone that ran the Microsoft OS so they could do whatever with it. And they just 
did nothing with that potential competitive advantage. Absolutely nothing. They just, you know, BlackBerry thought they had it sewn up in the business space and Apple just came and ate their lunch and Google were very, very close behind them. It amazes me Symbian still registers, as with you, but I don't think Microsoft have really got a leg stand on Windows Mobile. I think it was called Windows Mobile. At least looked a bit different with its sort of card interface. But it never had the App Store, it never had the developers for it, and never had, even when they bought bought Nokia by moving Stephen Elop, one of their executives, to Nokia and sort of to t- take over, they never made a proper dent in the market. You know, even when they were on one of the most popular devices you could buy at that point. Yeah, and certainly, yeah, Nokia, what a brand, you know, from, from seeing it when we were younger. Interestingly, when you mentioned card interface, I just thought of Palm OS, if you remember that back in the day, which now runs on, all, I think became Web OS, which now runs on all our televisions. But equally, that, that they were the challenger in that space, but it just didn't didn't fly, did it? So we've got two, and it's largely been the same in the laptop space for how, however long now, for donkey's years, that it's just Apple and Microsoft in that space, and it's Apple and Google in the, in the mobile space. So... Um, yeah, I, I don't know what we're going to do with this. There's at least there's two, and it's not just a monopoly. Yeah, and there does seem to be a disparity between the amount of money people will spend on apps on the Apple side and how, what people are willing to accept. And you know, a lot of people like being in the Play Store because you can get the cracked app that will give you access to Spotify without paying the monthly thing, or will delete the adverts, or you know, all the rest of it. It's not an absolute feature of it. I think you know, ninety percent of Android users are probably the same as iOS users. They get the de- default things that come with the platform. They can get Facebook. They can get their WhatsApp. They don't really go dredging the depths of the App Store looking for X, Y, and Z, and they don't pay for lots and lots of things. They just want, you know, the the basics that come with it. If they subscribe to Spotify, they download the Spotify app, they put in their credentials, and off they go. So I agree with you. It's it's good to have at least a bit of parity between the two main vendors. This is quite an interesting article, though, without going into too much detail, what, what... the, the Japanese Trade Commission want to do with this. I mean, they put four things forward, four sets of actions to, to try and remedy the situation. So they want to allow third-party developers access to some of the deeper APIs that are available to platform vendors. I don't think that's a bad thing. Depends what, what's going to happen with it because you don't end up with a you know another Microsoft of, what, 2000-ish where people, you know, you turn on your device connected to the internet and all of a sudden... You know, it's just ruined because it's downloaded a Trojan or a virus or what have you. So I don't disagree with you. I think if it was done in the right way, I think it would be good. But there is a fine balance. No, but things we've talked about here. So, for example, access to the NFC chip for third-party developers to run their their wallets and things like that. Why should we? You know, that's a no-brainer to me that, yeah, maybe some of the really low-level stuff. But I don't think we're talking about that. I think a little bit more fairness when it comes to accessing some of the hardware features and what's, what's accessible in there at the same sort of level Apple do, because we know Apple will ban third-party developers for using a particular app that they view as internal, which is allowing them to do something interesting with the platform. So I don't think this is a bad suggestion at all to allow parity of developers on a platform. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that that is fair. Like we were talking about web, doing web browser early and using your own engine, like you say, using maybe the NSC chip, using more of Apple's APIs that they call private in, you know, for internal Apple consumption. I think there's a lot more they should be opening up. And I get there is work involved in doing that, but it feels like Apple's going to be forced to do it. And it's a shame they're being forced when they could have maybe done it under their own steam because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. 
Second thing, call for improved portability of user data between operating systems. That's only possible so far. You know, if you're deeply embedded in iCloud or you're deeply embedded in Google's OS for, I don't know, web space or something like that. I can't think of any of the Google apps. I don't know, Google Play Music or something like that. You know, it may not be that kind of thing. Your playlist should be portable, for example. There's no reason that if all the artists are in Apple Music and all are all in Google, Google Play Music, great. Why wouldn't you be able to do that? If, I could see it falling down a little bit if you'd bought movies or something from one and, you know, that may not be accessible either. But the basic where possible your email account settings and all that kind of stuff should be as portable as possible that could be interesting and another case for matter is we were talking earlier about having some health standards maybe matter should be doing portability standards for songs that you know how many times have i listened to the beatles track you know or alvis or whatever it may be and all my favorite artists and all that kind of thing and then you can have what films have i watched you know should all that be stored like you say, in a, in a common data format, so it is more interoperable. Same with photos and additional fields on photos. Poor, it's a big old job. I never, ever tried to move to another OS, but it's going to be hard work if I ever did. But, I mean, that's part, it's a fairly good point to make, actually, because those walls are what stop people moving back and forth. I mean, you and I have both been in the position where we've looked at, say, a folding phone or something great that Samsung's producing and go, oh, what a cracking bit of hardware. Wouldn't it be great if you could sort of fairly painlessly move over to the other thing and have almost everything that you were used for, used to, and, and get it? So that level of portability would reduce those barriers, wouldn't it? You know, it would, if it was dead easy to move to another platform, it does make it a little more, a bit more fair. I think what you're talking about, though, is not necessarily portability, but interoperability in that maybe I do want to keep my Mac or my iPad, but I want an Android phone or I want to use a Windows device. And actually, if I take a screen grab on my Windows device, how does it just go into my iCloud photos? Or, you know, how does it go into the service in the middle? Because that is the problem I think you've got at the moment is you end up locked into one larger ecosystem. Whereas actually, when I used to be a Windows user at work, it was like, oh, why can't I sync some of this stuff with my apple devices and they do it a little bit but it's not that great it's got better i think over the years like with photos and things but you kind of want that i think you do want that interoperability how can i pick anyone maybe i want google to have my photos and i want apple to have my contacts but it doesn't matter which which os i'm using it all just works and talks to each other mm. it's an interesting suggestion anyway third recommendation ensuring fairness and rulemaking for the mobile ecosystem i.e Apple and Google need to give developers more detail and more notice when they change the rules. Can't argue with that. I think that's fine, but I don't know. If Apple, I think Apple are pretty good at telling people when they change the rules, are they not? I th they're not like Twitter, though, where it's like, it just happens and then they might tweet about it a day later. So I don't, I don't know, and I can't speak for Google, but I think from what I've heard, I don't think both companies are terribly bad at that one. No, but... We talked about the price changes a couple of weeks back. I don't think they gave a huge amount of notice that they were going to whack the prices up, did they? Yeah, maybe you're right, but I guess it depends Yeah, how you grade the different severities and then how, how much notice do you give? Oh, my lordy. Yeah, I mean, big OS updates, I think both companies are quite good. They both have their events. They speak to the developers. You know, they spend a lot of time saying the current version of Android is called Tiramisu. I, didn't, I only knew that because I did a lecture last week. Tiramisu is coming, you've got this, that, and the other thing comes along, you know, as part of it. There's going to be new APIs, you're going to have access to that. That kind of stuff's good. But I guess when they're talking about, you know, changes in finances, changes in API, this this route, this will be deprecated. You know, you should have six months, 12 months, a year's notice, you know, for, for however long you need to make that level of change. For example, we're sunsetting iOS 12 this year or whatever that the rule may be, and Android may do the same thing. 
giving people enough warning that this is going to happen is you know it's not unreasonable to to have that level of detail depending on what it is you're changing so i think it's a fair enough rule yeah i wouldn't disagree i have actually seen a lot of corporations struggling to offload all their iphone 7s and they're all doing it now because they don't run ios 16 but yeah we've probably all known since june that it was coming but then sometimes you rush to try and you know accommodate apple and then they they actually backtrack on it like they did with the iPad OS stuff working on and on M1 chip. So sometimes you don't want to rush to meet the rules. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. And, mm. and the fourth one I don't understand. The fourth and final recommendation is titled Promotion of Competition Related to the Formation of New Ecosystems and it has, a, has the following description. Continuing to bring in innovation without hindering the creation of new products or services and the construction of new ecosystems centered on such products or services by developers other than Google or Apple. What? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit speechless. I'm wondering, is that like somebody comes up with a new Photos app and Apple have to promote it, even though it's in direct competition with their first party one? Or I don't know. It feels a bit odd, that one. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, it's it's interesting. They've obviously thought about this a fair bit. With, well, maybe it's maybe it's a translation from Japanese thing into, into English that we're failing to understand something. But this now brings Japan, South Korea, Australia, the UK, the EU, India, and American legislators all lining up against Apple and Google. It's I think the writing is on the card, isn't it? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the messaging is later this year. There's got to be something coming, surely. And my final thought on this is the US Commerce Department has labelled iOS and Android App Store model as harmful to consumers and developers. Wow. Harmful is quite a strong word. It's a very strong word. Good. I think that'll do us for that story. And the last one, I just think, is an interesting one as much as anything else. Apparently, the new Apple TV 4K, which I was all, I almost put in my shopping trolley yesterday morning, actually, to buy one. I was talking about trying speakers here, there, and everywhere. And then I saw this story, and I thought, actually, I might slow down a little bit and not rush to buy this. The new Siri remote connectivity issues continue to plague Apple TV 4K despite recent tvOS updates. So anybody who has one of the newest generation Apple 4K TVs quite a high percentage of people are just experiencing remote dropouts, continuous on and off, remote connected, remote disconnected, no matter the state of the charge, no matter resetting the Apple TV, no matter resetting the remote, issues around the remote control controlling their Apple TV. Very widespread, and I think this is not a good look. Yeah, this is not a good, good look at all, because you'd have maybe expected this on the last round of Apple TVs because it was a new remote. And actually, they've been fairly solid. I've got three or four of them. No issues really in our house. They work fantastically. And yet for this to come along where they've changed the connector, maybe they've changed too much of the gubbins either inside the remote or inside the Apple TV box. But it just seems an odd problem to have this far into it. I mean, they're on the third gen 4K, you know, iteration. How's this come? How did this get out? I mean, it just seems a very odd problem to have. And if it's quite a high percentage, how did that that ball get dropped in the testing and development. Well, the journalist hypothesizes it's related to the USB-C version of the Siri remote. The, the, the Lightning one seemed to be fine. It's just the USB-C one that may be causing the issue. That's really bad and really strange. Like I say, it seems really odd because not not being a you know an expert in how they develop it, but the remote looks very much like the, the Lightning one that I've already got, and they've just changed the connector at the bottom. So it's either the remote, is it the remote, though, where they've changed the connector, or is it actually the new Apple TV hardware? Because it does feel like they really changed the Apple TV hardware. It's a slightly smaller box, A15 chip, no fan in this one. So is there something, have they changed something else there? But given that the Apple TV doesn't change that often, it, yeah, it seems very strange to me that this is, this is a problem they're getting with it. So And probably a hard one to fix, because you need to get everybody to plug their remote in and firmware upgrade it. 
Yeah, well, possibly. I'd be interested to see. I, I As I read the story, I wonder if this is also related to our Matter slash Thread radios as well, because maybe this new version of the Apple TV is running the software related to Matter Thread, and maybe the remote, maybe that's how it pairs rather than using good old-fashioned Bluetooth as well. So maybe this is a Matter problem too. <laughs> All roads lead to Matter. Also, why on that remote did they bother putting another port on it? Why is it not just a Qi charger? Come on. Who's got a Qi charger liner in the living room? Apple users. Like well, I have a MagSafe right next to my telly so that, I can charge phones and stuff. Sure, but I just wonder what percentage of people have in their living rooms. I can see them being in their kitchen cabinets or by their bedsides or whatever. I don't think that's. Who's many... got a USB C charger in their living room? I got a PlayStation 5. I've got several USB C chargers in my living room. Yeah, I never really think of using them like that, to be honest. Mine powers down in the state where the ports stay alive for three hours to charge the remotes and th- to charge the, the controllers and things back up. So I've always got a USB C charger to hand. You've not got the dual dock that you put to it to your console chart. They're awesome. So you put two of the remote, the console, that controllers in and it charges both of them. I, I got that because, do you know why I have these things in my house? Because it makes my children put them in the same place every time and not just lying on the sofa. The children have got really good. And equally for the Apple TV remote, we've got a little stand that you put in, just a little bit of wood that holds it. But do you know what? They are so good, the kids, at putting it back because they know that's where it lives. And it's really ingrained in them to put it back. And so I always can find the Apple TV remote and the PlayStation controllers. It's the best thing I've ever done. Wow. I mean, the Apple TV remote is an improvement on the one that was there before, the sort of really wafer-thin one. But I still find it down, buried down the back of the sofa or wherever. Quite often on the arms of chairs is the most common place to find them. But if if my youngest daughter has been in the living room watching various things, then it's, it's Play Hunt the remote. I could really do with an air tag in the back of my remote sometimes. For the PlayStation controllers, I've only got one. We don't play. Two of us don't need that. It's generally to be found near the PlayStation. There's a cable hangs out the back of the PlayStation. I plug it in when it needs charging, which isn't all that regularly. I don't want my controllers on display in a stand in the living room. For, I've never wanted that. They're not on display. Everything's hidden behind uh, covered doors. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go on that one then. Anyway, it is interesting. It's an interesting thought that there there is a design problem. Is it the USB-C? Is it something to do with matter? Is it something in the Apple TV itself? Because the lightning ones seem to pair okay. So it just seems like a slightly odd story and, and a bit worrying. And I will hold off buying any Apple TVs for a little bit, I think. Yeah, you kind of want this one fixed. If you can't use the remote, feels a bit fundamental definitely anything else in news no i don't think so i mean it's only been a couple of days since we last recorded yep fair enough moving on media the first one is yours media yeah first one's me clarkson's farm so this is partly why i didn't do my homework of watching bleep taskmaster because me and the children have been watching clarkson's farm which is very much not bleeped and should be bleeped but it's fantastic did you watch clarkson's farm at all series one i watched the first episode of clarkson's farm and for those that can't see it, your face says everything. So I watched season one, thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's actually filmed not that far from where I live. It's about half an hour. And we, I watched season two as soon as it came out. I haven't watched it all, you know, about three or four episodes in. Love it. It's right up my street. I'm not the biggest Clarkson fan in the world, but I don't know why that the show has just struck a chord with me. I generally enjoy it. And actually, I've enjoyed sitting down with my kids on the sofa and watching it. I'm a bit torn a bit. Well, I'm not torn about Jeremy Clarkson. I, I, I had a certain amount of allowance for his... Tom Foolery, for want of a better word. In the Top Gear days, I thought he was a bit of an overbearing prig. There you go. That's a very polite word for the way he might be. But he was funny. And for good or bad, I allowed a certain amount of leeway because he was funny. 
I think the way he's behaved post-Top Gear, punching the guy who brought him a cold sandwich, for example, and then his comments related to Meghan Markle, whatever you think of Meghan Markle, I think the misogyny that came out of his mouth that he didn't want to apologise for, but only apologised for because there was such a backlash, even from Sun readers, about what he'd said in that particular article. I don't have a lot of time for him anymore. And I didn't dislike the first episode of Clarkson's Farm. I could see he was actually doing something useful for farmers. I think he made a bit of a celebrity of that guy, Caleb, is it? The guy that was working with him. But Very much so. I don't want to give him a platform anymore. I don't really want to watch what he's doing anymore. And I, that, as a consequence, I've got absolutely no interest in finishing season one or starting season two. I was trying to separate the art from the artist. That's what we were talking about like with Kevin Spacey a while ago and various other people. The show is very good. It's so well done. Some of the camera shots, fair play. It's fantastic. And he lives in a beautiful part of the world. I just really enjoyed it. I don't know why. It's just, for me and the boys, it just struck a chord with us. And it was nice to watch it. I wish they wouldn't film so much when they've got the vet out inspecting the animals with big rubber gloves on. I'm I'm quite squeamish. But no, it's it's super interesting. the, The biggest takeaway I've had from it is you actually need very few people to run a farm. To run, you know, tens of thousands of acres of farmland you actually need like four people to do 90% of the work. It's super interesting from that perspective. And the tech, some of the tech is pretty clever. God knows how these people drive these combine harvesters. It looks very complicated. But I, I do see your point, And I would imagine he's lost a lot of viewers. I don't agree with what he said about Meghan Markle and the way he did. I thought it was disgusting. It's, I'm not endorsing any of that. And the, yeah, not something I agree with, but the show on its own is, is very good. No, and, and I take your point very well that you, we... We have to sell, separate the artist from the art in, in some senses. Otherwise, a lot of it is tainted anyway. I think Clarkson is a special case because he is so much part of it. His personality is so much part of it. It's not like Kevin Spacey who read somebody else's script and put a performance into it. And I can make a, a cleaner separation at that point. Clarkson's personality drives these things. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I agree with it. And I do always wonder how much is really scripted or, you know... It's hard to know, isn't it? Because, oh, look, the cameras are here filming and we just so happen to do this idiotic thing or whatever. But I don't know. It has really gone down well, like I so, said, with my children and I. And it, I don't know. It's just, it's just a good bit. If you take it in light-hearted humour, it, it does cheer you up on a dull February afternoon. And I think that's fine. And I don't think farmers in the UK have got it particularly easy. I don't think current political climate has stood them in any stead, you know, in terms of what they made money, how they made money before and the way farming goes. So I think anything that raises their profile and makes it, you know, how difficult it is, even if you do need relatively few people, the cost of maintaining any sort of sizable farmland is insane and the equipment you need and the skills you have to have and how hard you have to work and and, and that's laudable I, I agree with that but, for, but i think i've made my reservations clear with the rest of it. but i'm glad your kids are enjoying it i think it's good that they have an understanding where food comes from you know the process of getting it from farm to plate is 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 a significant one and i think it's good that, that kids understand that so there are benefits so i don't want to be entirely negative no i'd agree with you i think the cost isn't isn't the manpower it is all the all the machinery and the chemicals and the, the various other pieces. And I think it is good for the kids. It's put farming in quite an accessible medium from somebody that they've seen on Top Gear. They can now watch do farming. It is interesting. Anyway, let's should we move on. Uh, next up on my list was I watched this thing called Blackbird on Apple TV. Have you heard about this? I have not. So I don't think I'd heard about this, but I was away a couple of nights in the week. And I just, I think it was just in the Apple TV app. And obviously they're pushing Apple TV Plus quite hard. So Blackbird came up and it's got, oh, I'm going to not pronounce his name right. The guy, guy out of Kingsman, Taron Egerton, I think it is, who played Exit. He's in it. He's incredibly muscly in it. Crumbs, he must have been working out a lot, lot for this role. And basically it's about the FBI 
taking his character who was like a gun and drug drug trafficker and then he gets arrested and then they go look do you want to reduce your sentence if you go into this high security prison and get you know befriend this person because we want to understand where some bodies of some women that he's potentially murdered are and it and i'm only a few episodes in but actually generally quite enjoying it i don't know why it's just just try i thought i just try it i want to watch something different and I, yeah, i'd recommend it i find it really interesting now you now you're talking about it and you gave that description i do remember seeing the trailer for it i was on that oh that might be interesting list for me so uh, that sounds a good recommendation I'll, I'll check it out i'll go after slow horses and my thing things i must eventually get around to on apple tv you must watch Slow Horses. It's so good. But no, it seemed quite good. And it's based on a true story, which is, and I quite like things based on a true story because I don't know why I find some of these true stories you hear about and then you you see them. are just like, wow, what, you know, it's amazing what, what humans can do. So yeah, it, it looks good on the outset. I think, but I can't remember how many episodes is so great episodes, I think. Fair enough. Good. I haven't done a lot of TV this week. I have managed to cram a couple of films in though. So the first one is Banshees in a Sharon, which I think you mentioned on this podcast a few weeks back and you thought it was pretty good, as I recall. I thought it was all right. I didn't think it would be for me at all. I was kind of watching it because I'd heard a lot of noise about it and I didn't think I'd enjoy it, but actually generally quite enjoyed it. It's probably not something I'd watch frequently, but and I watch a lot of films repeatedly, but, but I quite enjoyed it. What did you think? It's one of those... I did appreciate it. I thought the cast were excellent. The script was good. The, I, I, as with Bad Sisters, Ireland has never looked so good as it does in a lot of these things. Ireland just looks terrific in this film. It's a bit odd. It's a bit more odd than, than Martin McDonough's usual films, I, I would say. It's it's certainly not an In Bruges and, or, or even a guard, really. But yeah, a really good film. Odd script. I think I think I got the allegory they were going for in it. You know, the, the two people in it are actually Ireland itself and, you know, the IRA and ripping yourselves apart and sort of that mutilation aspect of it being, you know, the impact on Ireland. I think. I haven't read anything about that. That was just sort of my take on it as they were going through this. And I don't think that gives anything away particularly. My youngest daughter was very upset with the outcome for one of the animals in the end, I must say. So that sort of came out of nowhere and was a bit sad. But yeah, not a bad film. What A bit of a one that made me think about it, I think. Yeah, that's kind of where I was at with it. I think I, it was just nice to see something a bit different, isn't it? No, you know, not not loads of CGI and all of that. And it, yeah, it was good, good cast, just something different. And sometimes we all need a bit of something different. I think. Yeah, and it did make you think, and I'm I'm with you for that. If you if you fancy it at all, I think it's worth a watch. And if you like Martin McDonough's other films, it is a little bit different, but it looks terrific. And Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell are thoroughly watchable. And I don't know the actress's name, but the actress that plays the sister of. Of the character of oh my god of Colin Farrell of Colin Farrell's character she she's terrific and I hadn't realised I was looking her up on Wikipedia and she did the voice of Friday in the Spider Man films which gives me a nice little link actually to my next film which is I watched Spider Man No Way Home again have you have you got this far in the Marvel Cinematic Universe yet have you watched the third Spider Man film he, he, that's one that came out a year ago yeah will take so I have seen that but I don't think I've seen the one in the middle right so there was mm, Far From Home Long Way Home No Way Home. I think with the, uh, the three. Like so I think I've seen. I must have seen No Way Home, which is the last one, but I've not seen the one in the middle. Yeah. I hate it when films use the same word in the in the subtitles because it just means they're hard to remember which order they run in. Because I, I took took a bunch of kids to see it at the cinema, a bunch of ten year olds basically. They all loved it, but I had no idea what was going on to begin with, if I'm honest. Because I was just I, I just haven't kept up with it. Obviously, I understand what Spider Man is, but I knew little else of what was going on. Had you watched either of the two previous Spider-Man series, the Tobey Maguire one or the Andrew Garfield one? Tobey Maguire, yes. Garfield, no. So yeah, I've never been as into Spider-Man. I think I've been more of a Batman person. 
Right. But but that mean at least you knew who they were. So when when the surprising thing happened, you just thought, oh, that's quite cool. Yeah, I did. I did appreciate that, and I, I then had to explain it to my children because they they hadn't seen those ones. Like I said, we just went on a whim with some friends who wanted to go. Yeah, I really enjoyed the film. I have kept up with all the stuff. I have watched all the Spider-Man films. I do like most of them. It must be said. I think I like the Tobey Maguire ones more than the Andrew Garfield ones. Not that they were awful but they weren't the greatest films in the world. And it's a bit of an ask. You know, as somebody who's followed all these things, I was like, oh, I'm in geek heaven. They've done X, Y, and Z. But if you came into this cold, not, not having watched, you know, however many hours it is, the previous, the five films you hadn't watched to get to this point were, that is mystifying. You wouldn't have a clue what was going on. You wouldn't, if you didn't know who Doctor Strange was, and you just wanted a Spider-Man film, it's out of nowhere. I mean, maybe Marvel are hoping that everybody's seen all of the films to this point, but it's just quite an ask for people, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big commitment. It's more than five films. There's five Spider-Man films, plus the two of this series, plus Doctor Strange. So, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and if you didn't know, the Loki TV series has got probably got more to do with it than any of the Spider-Man stuff as well. So that's another nine or ten hours worth of television you should watch too. I did not know that. Yeah, this is it. I mean, I'm up on this stuff mostly because my kids were so into them, the MCU and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of commitment to really get all the niche stuff that comes into film. Having said all that, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wa- this is the second time I've watched it. I enjoyed it far more this time, knowing what was coming and looking out for the bits and pieces. It was great. Yeah, I do watch a lot of things repeatedly. So I don't know why I enjoy watching a film that I know and I like seeing it again. So maybe I need to go back and do that. I did enjoy it the first time out, but like you say, you sometimes pick up on things second time around because you, you miss things first time around. I think. But I think to properly appreciate it, you should watch the previous five Spider-Man films, at least. <laughs> I'm never going to fit that in. The Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, the first one and the second one particularly, the second one with Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus, are terrific films. You know, before we had all these Marvel Cinematic Universes and the DC Expanded Universe and all the rest of it, by themselves, they were just great films. Agreed. Yeah, I fondly remember them. I think they're out when we were roughly at university. So yeah, I agree. Yep. Good. Okay. Anything else for media? Nope. I think I've done all right this week for me, for a change. That's pretty good. And I'm going to be quite short in games because to be quite honest, I haven't done an awful lot of time. I, I have downloaded two games from the Steam Next Fest. So I did, do, I did do this last year when I talked about Hellsinger and another game that's completely left my brain at this point. But, oh, Capes was the other one I did last year. So every year about this time, Steam feature demos from a number of upcoming games developers that are going to be released within the next year. I sort of try and get a bit of interest in them. The two I downloaded were Infection Free Zero and The Last Starship. The Last Starship needs a tutorial desperately. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't know how to wire my engines up to my reactor or anything. It's sort of a, it's, it's quite hard to describe. You're the last starship. You've got to get across the universe. There's missions and things to do. And there's sort of a, cat, a catastrophe unfolding behind you you need to get away from. So there's kind of a clock ongoing. You can upgrade your spaceship. You can have pirate fights. You can do all sorts of stuff in sort of a 2D you know, prison architect, if anybody's familiar with that kind of genre of things, like a, like a city builder type thing. But on a starship, when you sort of can go from A to B and, and do stuff, it's quite good. Like I say, I really struggled. It needs a tutorial badly. It's free. If you're interested in a little bit of light sci-fi and a bit of adventuring, I think it's probably worth downloading. I think it's Mac compatible as well. I, I tried it on my Steam Deck and my Windows machine, and I'm sorry, my Linux machine, and it worked fine. So uh, The Last Starship might be worth a look at. Does that sound like your kind of thing? Oh, it sounds, certainly sounds interesting, yeah. I I play so few games, I guess. I'm just, I'm probably more right now of just to pick up a, like a car racing game or wander around and do something for half an hour game rather than something I've got to commit a huge amount of time to. 
So that's one. And the other one I downloaded is Infection Free Zero, which is a zombie apocalypse survival thing. It's more in the style of a Command and Conquer, actually, than anything else. So you're the survivors who survived the apocalypse. You need to try and rebuild society afterwards. At night, the zombies come out. It's pretty much it. But you have squads. You've got base management. You can build, you know, you've got resource gathering, all that kind of stuff. It's hook, and it's interesting hook, is that not in the demo, but the final release version uses Google Maps for where you're going to build your base. So the idea is you can actually do it in your hometown if you want. And it starts with four levels, one of which is a UK level at some district of Cambridge. So that's where I decided I was going to try it. But I just think, isn't that interesting, that sort of hyper-localization where we'll use Google Maps to sort of look at the areas around you or where you'd like to try and survive the zombie apocalypse from and go from there. I just think that's quite cool. That is cool. And Flight Simulator made me think of this of where we can use real maps to play play in. And there was a game a long time ago on the internet where you would get dropped somewhere, say in the UK, and you had to work out where you were, and you could just walk around. You know, you, you were just walking around in Street View, basically, and you had to work out where you were in the country. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, there was a music video by the band Arcade Fire, I want to say about eight years ago, maybe nine years ago now, where you could drop your sort of avatar in a street in any town and it would it would generate the music video for what was going on based on the Google Map data around you. That was pretty cool too. I love that kind that's, of stuff. That's quite that's quite cool. Yeah, I mean that kind of use of collected data I have I'm I have a lot of time for. I think that's very useful. We might talk about, you know, other kinds of data a little bit later in the show. But yeah. Anyway, Infection Free Zero, the last starship of the two I've tried. I've downloaded the demo for Xenonauts 2, which is if you played XCOM back in the day, sort of a spiritual successor to that, more than the Firaxis XCOM games that I'm so deeply in love with. It's a lot more nerdy and in-depth and, and sort of stats-based than the newer XCOM games are. Certainly the, the first Xenonauts was. So I tried to play it this morning on my Linux box and it went wrong. I don't know if that's a consequence of me trying to play it on Linux or it's a consequence of playing the demo. So it's not fair to pass judgment on that yet. It hung in the tutorial anyway. So I will revisit that and, and see what's happening with that down the line. Fair enough. I think that's it for games. I've played literally nothing. Yeah, that, that was one I was going to mention just because I thought of you more than anything else in it than me. And it's called Herbal and it's a city building game where they say... It's threes meets Dorf Romantic. So Dorf Romantic was just a very simple hexagonal thing where you had, if you it would randomly deal you a tile and you had to stamp it down. One side would be city, one side would be water, one side would be forest, and you had to build up your city. You could rotate the tile to sort of make it fit into, into space and the map would continually grow. So I just thought the threes part of this and the simplicity might be worth something that you might want to keep your eye out on to see when Everable comes along and it's Mac or iPad compatible, whether it would be the kind of thing that would be up your street. Yeah, as soon as you said it was like threes, I was like, done. How does this work? Because I, I don't know why I love that mechanic. It looks very complicated for a threes game in that it's 3D textures and, and all of that. But I'd be interested to see if I can have a go on it. But threes really, for me, has got that sticky mechanic of I just pick it up. I don't need any internet connection. I can have a quick go on it and put it back away again. And it's like five minutes. You know, it's not a big commit. So now interested to see it. And somebody should build upon the threes mechanic because it's fantastic. I agree. It's good. It's, it, it is sticky. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see if somebody can pull that off. So we should keep our eye out for Herbal, really. Okay. Cool. Moving along. Main show. Yeah, so main show, you, you and I thought we should chat about chat GPT because we've kind of missed it in that we didn't really go into too much detail on it. Do we just have a brief talk around the AI space? I've listened to one or two podcasts this week around some of it. So we've put a few links in the show notes to a couple of articles and just, you know, do you, 
I guess the big question at the end is, is this AI actually starting to become useful now? Because I, God knows how long we've been talking about AI and machine learning all becoming useful, but I don't really recall actually seeing any massive benefits of it, but it, it feels like it's starting to have its day. Yeah, it's certainly having its moment in the sun, isn't it? And we've got a few stories, as Chris has said, that are in the show notes about that. I, I kind of want to start from the position that it's not really AI. It's not really doing anything particularly clever. What it's got is good language matching skills. So it pulls out things in words that seem to go well together for this version of it. It's not necessarily giving you the correct answer. It's giving you an approximation of other answers on similar topics. So... That sounds a bit abstract, but that's why on first read of these things, they seem quite plausible. But if you're an expert, for want of a better word in the space, the, the expertise is missing. On a very surface bounce off the sort of, some of the deeper topics anyway, it does seem to work quite well. And if you're doing something very concrete, like translating code from one thing to another thing, or asking for the result of a sum, or something like, a Google search would give you. I can see why it's almost good enough, but I don't think it's AI. AI, and for you know, it's not actually using applying any of its own logic to these things. It's just got a model based on the language systems that it's pulled together. So that's my sort of starter for ten. Yeah, I think what you're saying makes sense. I just think it, this Chat GPT has just permeated down there, hasn't it? It's something quite geeky, really. Of at the heart of how it works and you're talking about models and abstracts and stuff already and yeah you mentioned it in the office and i don't mean an it office i mean in a general office and everybody's heard about it it's really interesting you know it's been creeping up on my linkedin feed it's obviously on various news websites because people are looking at it and go wow you know and it, it does feel a bit like the google crawlers on steroids in essence because it, it, you can ask it more of a direct question with some you know there's a bit more constrained in that what's four plus four and obviously search engines have done that for a while but you can also ask it things that aren't so constrained and yet it will, it will seemingly come back with an answer so it it does look like an interesting space and i was listening to a podcast again links in the show notes the decoder podcast which i can't seem to push hard enough onto people because i find it really interesting because it's such a broad podcast of talking across various industries of chip manufacturers to uh, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, who's spent half an hour talking about this very thing and how Microsoft are investing in chat GPT without actually buying them. And yet they're then rolling it into Microsoft Bing and they're rolling it into their Edge browser to, to make it more, more competitive, I'm going to say, with Google at this point, because clearly Google have got the march on the search space for, I don't know, the last 20-something years. And it is interesting when people go, should I search for it on the internet? Nobody says that. People say, I'll Google it. It's like when you say, I'll Photoshop it. Even though I don't use Photoshop, I still say the word, I'll Photoshop it because people know what that means. And I say the word, I'll Google it, even though I use DuckDuckGo because it's got into, it was so good and so commonplace that people know what it is. But it is interesting. Did any of us think that in 2023, Bing, Microsoft Bing would be in the news? I don't think we did because I think we'd written it off a long time ago, but fair play to Microsoft. We've kept it just tickling along in the background and then all of a sudden gone boom. And we've also got a link in around, oh, Alphabet's Bard. And it is interesting that actually it feels like Microsoft have 
got a challenger to to where Google should be going, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, there's quite a lot lot to take in there. There is a lot to take in there, and I'm glad you brought up the Bard story. So Microsoft did this at launch where they were going to show it linked to Bing. You've got to opt into it. It's slightly behind. It's not a paywall, but it's but sort of an invite only type system at the moment. Bing's take on ChatGPT search isn't live for everybody just yet. There's some sort of token based system, is my understanding of it. Anyway, two days later, Google sort of in a slightly rushed way, you feel came to market saying they had a, a, a chat GPT competitor called Bard. They demonstrated it and exactly to what I was saying when, sort of when we started this piece is it got it wrong. You know, one of the things that were asked was about the James Webb Space Telescope. Bard claimed that the James Webb Space Telescope had found this thing and it hadn't been. It was the European Southern Observatory's very large array had found it first. So that's my point about how these models arrive at and what you search is that it seems plausible, but if you know it, the chances are it's going to be wrong. Now, to be fair to Google, Microsoft, their one wasn't making errors in that way in the same way that the Google one, Bard, had been. This mistake by Google as part of their launch cost them $120 billion off their stock price by getting p- pushing out this wrong thing. And that's, you know, you and I talk, talked about Apple's results last week, where, and we neglected to say last week, I meant to say, is that it was their second best quarter ever even though they were down on the year before. Second best quarter ever that they had in, in that particular thing, even though they lost money. They still made billions of dollars. And we're talking here, one mistake on this AI-based tool is $120 billion wiped off the stock value. It's huge amounts of money. It shows how competitive it is. It shows, I think, investors have a desire that Google get it right, or an expectation almost that Google will get this right. And to immediately be proved wrong on something that's critical of this, it shows how tentative some of these companies hold on these situations are. If Microsoft continue hitting out of the park and it's built into Office and it's built into Teams or something like that, so you ask a quick question, boom, there's your answer. People will start to be, you know, you know, believe and make use of it in a more systematic way. It does slightly bother me. It's like there's a there's a colleague of mine at work who looks at this stuff and he says, "Do these people want Skynet? Because that's how you get Skynet. <laughs> you start building into everything." And I think, yeah, you're probably a bit overblown there, Jeff. But I see where you're coming from. It's an interesting take, as in, yeah, massive step towards Skynet. I guess that what what Google have highlighted is. Obviously, historically, you do a Google search, you get some results. Now, they could take you to a false result. For example, you could see a page telling you, you know, I don't know, something completely incorrect about, say, I don't know how the combustion engine works, for example. Whereas now you're going to have the problem that you just do a search. You probably don't even leave Google's page or Microsoft's page. And it's telling you incorrect information. But yet, it's coming from what you call a reputable source, i.e. Google or Microsoft. And therefore, actually, could this be a way that actually, you know, falsities come out and it isn't always 100% right and how do people know to corroborate it so that is a a real concern I think that is my problem and it's not me as an academic going you know you've got to have a decent reference for this you've got to prove that it works academics get things wrong all the time but the thing is when they do they then front up and they go, ah, yeah, our experiment was incorrect. We need to withdraw this paper. We do all those sort of due diligence things that I don't believe, you know, an AI tool isn't going to show that. What's going to happen is somebody's going to copy and paste the text that comes out of it, bang it into their essay or their press release and just go from there. I read a thing about a men's magazine putting out a whole sequence of, of articles on calorific values of things. I think it was men's health or something like that, based on the output just of of, of chat of chat GPT. That's tremendously dangerous for if somebody's just reading the magazine and going, oh, that, if I do this, I'll gain muscle mass or I'll lose weight or whatever the particular result was. 
it's the level of comfort, what you've said, everybody in your office knows about ChatGPT. They know what's going with it. People are delighted that this is a thing that they can make use of. They want to start using the results. They want something explained to them like they're a cowboy or like they're five or something like that because it seems quite entertaining. But the danger isn't very far below the surface of exactly what you said. The reputation of your search engine or your results has been created for Microsoft and for Google over a very long time. And I think the Google thing in particular shows how quickly that could be wiped out. Yeah. And equally, I guess, if Microsoft have a couple of mishaps, it's not going to damage their search reputation that much. But apparently Bing shot up the list of the app search for in the App Store the next day because people want to try this out. One of the links I've put in there to The Verge actually is, you know, about a writer at The Verge. And one of his friends contacted him and said, I've just, you know, used it to write a macro in Excel and noodle about with it. And it's given me all the answers I want. So I think it is interesting because it did kind of feel like search engines were largely done. And it was a solved problem 25 years ago in that Google came up with a plan, indexed the world, basically. And nobody's ever really been looking for anything in that space. So it's quite interesting it's come from nowhere. Like Microsoft are the challenge, the scrappy challenger in essence at the moment. And sometimes you do need a challenger to come in and disrupt this, this, the, the marketplace. I think Google were too hasty to try and respond to Microsoft and actually they've ended up damaging themselves by launching too soon. It would have been better if they did more of an Apple here, let, let somebody else run off and do something whilst they just line up all their ducks in a row. So I'm, I'm surprised about how this has played out, I guess, in the last week or so. Yeah, I got to think, is it Sundar Pichal? Is that the name of the CEO of Google? He's he kind of missed a step here, hasn't he, by trying to rush something to market. And this is something, if any company should have been out in front of, it should have been Google. You know, if you think TensorFlow and all their sort of machine learning algorithms and things that have been built for a very long time, their hardware, their software has driven this for a very long time. I don't understand how they could, A, be behind Microsoft in announcing something. Although, as you say, Microsoft have par partnered with ChatGPT on this. It's not in-house to them. It's a very Microsoft move, isn't it? Buy them or acquire them or merge with them or you know spend a bit of money on them. As opposed to Google's, it's not invented here. We don't really want any part of it kind of way. And Google just really seem on the back foot. And whatever I think of the technology, it's not a good place for your market leader in this space to be so far behind and then to immediately such a make such a big misstep. Yeah, and no, I'd agree. And I put another link into Darren Fireball, and there's a quote at the end. So I just read it. You'd be a fool to count Google out of this race, but shipping talks and something, <laughs> some BS walks. Microsoft is opening up the new Bing to real people now, not so with Google's Bard. So it's quite an interesting way of summarizing it. Like Microsoft have shipped something out that they are letting you know the public use. So. Very interesting, I think. Yeah, it is. You know, and I managed to download and you make use of chat GPT. You can never really use it because the API is always so busy. You know, if you want to do ask it a quick thing, it, you, it sits there and it queues it. And obviously they're prioritizing their paying customers over their free ones. But so many people are building it into their, their products now. You can see Microsoft, how do I do this formula? You know, boom. Oh, you want to add that row and that row together? Bang, there you go. There's your formula for it. So I guess it makes sense in that sort of limited application. And if nothing else, all the eyes are on Microsoft now again, aren't they, in this space? And they weren't for a long time, haven't been for a long time. Yeah, I think fair play to them. They've, they've come out of nowhere with this. I think it's fantastic. But what you're saying there about validating, you know, all the responses that it gives, that's something that you're never going to be able to do because it's such a big thing with so much demand on it. It's literally going to be impossible to go, actually, is it, has it corroborated itself? And that, I guess that's the next stage of, you know, it's, it's found an answer. 
to the to the question but then it needs to work out a way of going away and validating its own answer that, that that's when it will truly be impressive i think i mean this is my real worry about stuff like this is that was it copilot github's copilot product product which was going to try and give you coding results so if you were writing a python thing and you didn't know how to do a loop you could ask copilot to you know fill this in and fill in my variables for me based on the product you've already seen based on a loop and it used stack overflow and other sources to source answers I'm not saying correct answers, answers for how that code would be implemented. And on the surface, that's great. Oh, I just can bang this in here, there, and there. And bang, I've got a loop. Looks like my program works. Move on. We all know that's not how programming happens. We can quite often get something up and running. And then like a week later, you look at the output of it and you go, oh, that's not right. You know, it's a really common programming thing. And that's why you do testing. And that's why you've got, you know, all the, all the various, various ways of ensuring your code is correct these days. Whereas if you just accept the answer that's been generated for you by the AI from one of them, and there were very big scare quotes around the AI, you could end up in a world of hurt not now, because right now it looks right. It's in a week or a month or a year when you're depending on that piece of code and everything else is propped up by it. Well, as they say, software's hard, isn't it? And it does, yeah, it does change and evolve. And testing's hard. And testing for every edge case is hard and what people are going to do with it. I think it's quite exciting and it is great. Yeah, great to see the wider world interested in something quite geeky, I think. So I'm quite enjoying it. I'm curious to see where we're going to be like a year from now. Are we still going to be talking to chat, chat GPT or is it going to be written off as passing fad and actually Microsoft bet on the wrong horse? It's hard to tell at this stage, but right now it looks like they're betting on the right horse. They've got something that is tangible for people to use. And maybe this is what, what Googling is going to be in, in two years' time. Do you think we could ask GPT, chat GPT to fix Matt? <laughs> why, why, why isn't Matt shipped properly yet? Can you, can you help Apple ship the update to the HomeKit architecture? Because Chris wants to add his doorbell. It's, it's something you've got to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think the la the closing story here is that everybody and their dog is going to have a go at putting something AI-based out. We saw in the news that Apple were having a town hall meeting with all, the, all their staff about what do we do in this space. Typical Apple, as you said, sort of stand back a little bit and see what happens. And our sort of final linked story in the show notes here are Opera, who still make a browser, who knew, are also trying to bake ChatGPT into the browser. If we're going to release you know, their own browser, by the way, when, they, when they're allowed to on the iOS apps, they can have their own engine. Yeah, interesting Opera trying to get in on it. But Opera have always tried to do things a bit differently, to be fair to them. They've, I remember using it, I don't know, 15 years ago, and they're always a little bit out there. But I think we need that. We need people to be challenging in all spaces because it keeps it interesting. I 100% agree with you. It's, Opera have always been a little bit different. And I was I was being a little bit flippant when I said they still make a browser. I know they still make a browser. There was a period there, and it might actually be back to the Symbian days. You know, we were talking about that OS before. That the Opera browser was one of the first proper browsers you could get on Symbian to, to, to browse the proper internet, not the, was it WAP? Not, not the WAP-based rubbish one that, that came with the phones at the time. So, yeah, I'm quite glad Opera is still around. It amazes me they still exist as an entity in, in this competitive browser world where Chrome seems to own everything. Yeah, it's 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 good to see. I hate Chrome. Sorry, I just never likened to it. I can't explain why. I was always a Firefox person back in the day. Yeah, I, we go back and forth on the browsers. I, I like Chrome in as much as it's fueling my Arc browser, which I, I, you know, I'm still using every single day and I think is a terrific browser. But as I said before, if I couldn't have this, I'd be back on Firefox. Yeah, I can understand it. I need to try Arc, actually. That's been my homework for a while. Now I can. 
on that note, I think we can we we can pack up Chat GPT. Although we will, of course, keep an eye on it, and if something else relevant comes along, I think it's worth discussing because it's the current new hotness in tech, isn't it? Have we got other to talk about this week, Chris? We may have. So I may have made a spur of the moment purchase, as you do, and I do like your T-shirt that you're sporting today, by the way, as it's the chip that's inside my new toy. So I did go out and buy a MacBook Pro. I didn't get an M21. I did go and get an M11. I got one fairly maxed out, I'm going to say, for, for the money. And I just came across on John Lewis because obviously trying to offload some stock. And they were saying it, re- I thought, reasonably priced for what it was. And they did financing and I took advantage of everything. So, yeah, I went and bought a MacBook Pro M1 Max with 32 gig RAM, one terabyte hard drive, 14 inch in silver, which I think looks awesome. So I kind of wanted it because we've been doing this show for just over a year. And we've talked quite a lot about a bit of coding playing with virtual machines and I was like I need to get back into this space I'm not doing much in it I feel like my skills are aging out a little bit maybe I'm having a midlife crisis and I thought you know what I'm going to go and treat myself I wanted something and I had when I'd been in the Apple stores recently get my iPad fixed I was looking at some of these these devices and the hardware is just fantastic the build quality it looks amazing I know they haven't really changed like when the lid shut the shape much but you know it's the new one they've slightly changed the, the angle the radius of the corners they look fantastic like i said i got it in silver and it goes very well with my studio display here in the shed but what a, what a piece of hardware just fantastic what made me spring for this model is i was looking at getting a macbook air the new one the m2 one because i really like the, the design of it but i thought oh, i hasn't got the promotion screen i was going to spend nearly two grand on it because i wanted one with 16 gig ram and at least a one terabyte hard drive and I thought, you know what, I might as well just really go for it and get the Pro because having the ProMotion screen would be nice, you know, slightly bigger screen, having to be a bit faster. But yeah, just what a stunning device. I'm, re- I'm really in awe of it because I just think it looks looks so good and it's Apple at their peak. You know, you've got the thin bezels on the screen. You've got the camera now with the notch on it, which I haven't used before, but you know what? You instantly forget it's got a notch. The black keyboard well and, and the keyboard is beautiful on it so much better than those butterfly keyboards we had for a while and i quite like a stiff keyboard but even i admit the, the butterflies ones weren't very good but yeah they've really iterated the design the fin finish is fantastic i've sent you in the pre-show just the only bit that slightly annoys me is when you pick it up it's got some air vents just on the left and right of the palm rest they are in the wrong place and very to me feel very sharp that, that's the only thing i change on the hardware of it so yeah super happy i've set it up what i did find weird on the setup though is you can't just hold your phone near it and go set my Mac like you can with your iPad and your iPhone. You know, if you hold it near another device, it uses some form of Bluetooth, I'm guessing, to go, oh, look, Chris has got a device next to this one. Does he want to set this one up as Chris? So that was a little frustrating. But anyway, I logged into it. I couldn't log in with my Apple account because the OS it shipped with was one from about a year ago. So it's clearly been in stock for a long time at John Lewis. But it was, I guess, a bit of an odd model for them to sell because it's quite specced out. And I can't imagine many people are going to John Lewis for it. The side benefit buying in John Lewis in the UK is you get an extra year's warranty with it. So all Apple stuff comes with two years. So I was quite pleased about that. But anyway, installed everything. Got it all updated to the latest Mac OS version. You know, I had to download 12 gig of data, which thankfully in the modern world doesn't take too long. But yeah, it's all up and running. I've put some apps on it and I bought it largely to do some VMs and start being a bit more techie and do some coding. So I also bought myself a, a coding book, which will be a nice change. I did even go into a bookshop to look and it's interesting. I don't know if you've been in a bookshop lately, but there are literally no IT books in a bookshop these days because I just wanted to have a browse around and I just wanted something tangible. And there's just nothing in there. So um, I ordered one on, on Amazon, which looked, looked quite good. And I've just got up and going. So I've got 
Xcode on there. I was trying out for running Windows. And fair play to them. I mean, you literally install Parallels and it goes, do you want to install Windows 11? And it just goes off and does it all. You don't even have to go and find it from Microsoft. So I've done that on the free trial just to just to tinker with it. But I know you've sent me some other ones to try out. So I'm going to do that next. But I'm super pleased with it. It was a bit of an extravagance in the current economic climate here in the UK. But I'm looking forward to doing and more just to play with it and actually have something to show for a day that is a bit more tangible than, than being on a Teams call. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear your perspective of not having really had a Mac for a couple of years and you know where 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 you li- where you land in that ecosystem really. I 100% agree with you on almost everything you said about the hardware. The vents are a little on the sharp side. I can honestly say I don't know. So I tend to pick it up front to back rather than side to side. That might be because I've subconsciously adapted to the fact that the vents are there and I just don't reach under the device there. Yeah, maybe I've just yeah, I don't know. Every time I pick it up, I've always picked up the laptop there without thinking about it. And they're just a bit sharp. I, I, I don't know. It just seems a bit of a, a ball drop. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I've got the bigger one as well. It's the 16-inch one I've got. So I don't know. Uh, like I say, I must have subconsciously done it. I find it's a little bit higher off the ground than previous Macs in that. The feet, yeah, the feet, the feet certainly seem to stand proud. And I reckon they must have done that for airflow and cooling, surely. Yeah, mine lives in a stand at home and at work. Obviously not when I'm out at work and all the rest of it. It's on my lap or it's on a tray table or something like that, depending on where I'm using it. 16 inches too big, I would have said, for most things. I did want a... I hate the phrase for the for the person who uses it, desktop laptop as much as anything else. I wanted it to be, you know, at the time of COVID particularly, it was going to live lived shut next to my widescreen or, and then when I've started going back into the office, I still feel I've made the right choice. I've, a 16-inch laptop, f- for the weight of the thing, I know it's bigger and heavier than sort of 11-inch MacBook Airs I've had in the past and all the rest, but I really don't notice the size except when I'm on like on a train or something like that. The rest of the time, I just appreciate having a bigger screen and the screen is so beautiful. Yeah, I can see the benefits. So I got it and I took it out and I thought, oh, it looks a bit small actually. And this is 14.2 inch screen. It actually is fairly light considering it's the Pro model and it does look chunkier obviously than, than the Airs. And I, I did, part of my reason for getting it was we've got a Mac in the house, a Mac mini that we share with the children. And I'd left it unplugged and done things with it the other day. And, I, and then the kids were like, why can't I use the Mac? And I was like, actually, it's not my Mac anymore. And I thought, actually, I need to make that really the children's Mac because as they get older, they're going to need to do more and more on it. And I did debate getting a desktop but I wanted a device I could take between the house and my shed and occasionally take it out with me. I'm not going to be using it for work like I do my iPad. My iPad's still going to remain just as it is. It really is just to start scratching that that techie, geeky bit inside me because I haven't done it for a few years. No, it's good. So I'm with you on the hardware, the software and the setup. I, I had a few thoughts about that. I suspect you've either never had a Mac before, most people who've got a Mac, therefore, you know, other than pairing your iCloud account, if you've got an iCloud account, it's kind of a, eh, you know, fair enough, you know, sign in, not the end of the world. But you just want to pull on the Wi-Fi, don't you? And, and if you hold your phone near your iPad, you then just go, yep, I want to set this one up and it puts on the Wi-Fi for you and, and does all of that. So it was just those little, and it was really minor, but just the little niggles. Oh, I've got to go find my Wi-Fi password and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it could work either way, couldn't it? If, you, if you're new to the phone, then you should be able to put your Mac next to it and, and vice versa. It would be a, a good quality of life improvement. I do agree with you from that point of view. And then the other thought was, if you are coming from another Mac, the chances are you're either going to restore from a backup, you know, to put it back on there in some way, or you're setting up as a fresh device. And I still occasionally set them up as fresh, fresh devices just because I quite like that, not to have the cruft. It's funny, I was doing something on my wife's iMac the other day. 
and the stuff in there from, I don't know, it must be the early, early 10.2, 10.1 days, you know, our photo library goes back a long way. There's shortcuts, I was looking in the startup screens and all the rest of it, and it's linking to Java updaters and all sorts of stuff. that I don't remember the last time I installed Java on any computer. And, and, and finding those sort of little stubs of code going back years and years and years, that can't be good really, can it? I agree with you. I quite like to set one up fresh. I did did with this one. What did get me though is, so once I installed the new, new OS on it and got to Ventura, I was then going into system settings. I can't find anything in that thing. It was awful. I was like, "Where? where's all the stuff I know? And obviously I know the Apple on the iPad one really well and, and my phone, but I just couldn't find stuff in it and it was driving me around the twist. So yeah, I get why they've done it, but yeah, I think they could have thought out better. I then used Windows 11, as I mentioned, as you found their system settings a bit better than Apple's, which was made me a bit sad, if I'm honest. Yeah, system preferences was never great, but I think we'd all just grown so used to it. System settings is a terrible, awful, evil piece of code that should never have been allowed out in the state that it's in. And even doing commonly used things are problematic. It's funny, I was talking with a colleague of mine who had somehow managed to trigger continuity mode. It's not called continuity mode. When you, you're, you've got two Macs next to each other and you can push the mouse from one onto the other. You know, you know the thing I mean. No, it's not sidecar. I do. I can't think yeah. what it's called. Anyway, that thing you'll be able to do it now. You've got a Mac and an iPad, and if you if you've got one open and you don't know which side the cursor has left on, you know because you just opened up, finding your way a to disable it, who's got control of the keyboard, what goes where, is immensely con- confusing. And then if you add the disaster that is the system setting screen now on in Ventura. It's just what a horrible situation to have left people in. This is one area, and what is a very stable operating system, I've got to say, that it has been fairly unburstable for me, Ventura. Very, I get very little in the way of apps crashing or anything. It hangs together very, very well. But system settings, I almost don't want to go anywhere near system settings because it's such an awful app, and that's terrible for the homegrown application that you use to manage quite a lot of your operating system. Yeah, I- yeah, I'd agree with you there, I think, in that it just seems a mess system sense. I don't know why. Even though they've taken it off the iPad and it seems to work on the iPad, I don't get how they've managed to make it so bad. And I guess is where they're trying to fuse iPhone, iPad, and macOS together. It's quite hard to fuse macOS into iPadOS because there is a lot of legacy there. It was quite nice using system preferences just before I did the upgrade, just to do a couple of settings, like to speed up the trackpad and things. Surely they're going to iterate on it, but I think they released it a year too early. Yeah, there was no great pressing need for them to do this. And I don't think there is a huge requirement to make an iPad a Mac and a Mac an iPad. I don't mind them having a little bit of separation between them. And I don't think, you know, you're you're coming from one or the other. You didn't need to see an iPad-like system settings on your Mac. You, were, you would have been quite happy with system preferences. You could have found what you were looking for. Why have they done it? I think they're doing it so people, not like me, they've used one for 20 years, but new people can, you know, go between any of the devices and it all works in a similar way, I guess. And it's kind of the same what they've done with various other things like the TV OS has got a dock, your watch has got a dock, your iPhone's got a dock, your Mac's got a dock. They're trying to use the same design paradigms everywhere. And I think that's what they're heading for to have more conformity across the piece. Yeah, my toaster's not my microwave though. I don't disagree with you, but you can see they're doing it. They've got, you know, multitasking that works the same on all these devices and you know, to swipe up to kill something, it's the same when you watch. And I think that's why I'm doing it, because people own more than one device now. Well, I think they should just be able to get on with it and use it, use it for what it is. But that's a debate for another day. My last thought, because we're going to go long otherwise, is that what you were talking about, your virtualization thing, I do think you should check out UTM particularly, because it's ease of use and it is a completely free application in my mind, is better than Parallels. I found it far easier to use. And I don't know if you've tried it yet or it's on your to-do list, 
but it also tries to do the same thing. Click here, download that version of Linux that's suitable for your chip. Click here, download that version of Windows. You may need to sign into a developer account. I forget how the ARM version of Windows is distributed these days, but I suspect you're going to have just an easier, as easy a time using it. I just tried Parallels because it's one I used, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and just thought, I'll just stick with all I know. And I just wanted to try out a few things, that was all, I think. so. But it's interesting using it. I didn't hear the fans once. You know, I'm running two operating systems at once. It's fantastic. But no, agreed. I, I am planning to try out. I, I needed Parallels because I had a free trial for 30 days. I thought that would get me up a go. Yeah, it's, it, see, for me, virtualization is a commodity these days. You don't need to pay anybody to do virtualization. Apple even, you know, you can write one li a couple of lines of Xcode and use the built-in virtualization technology that's built in the macOS, which is more work than you wanted. I understand the sort of desire to, what's the easiest path of least resistance way of doing this? I'm used to parallels, bang, off you go. But your challenge for the week, and I'm going to go and write it in homework right now, is to go and use UTM and try and get Windows installed with that. And you tell me which was easier, and frankly, what's more worth it. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, th I think that's fair. I, th I think I'm just, I want to get more back into my more techie roots. So this is a good, good way into it. Because where re the action really is, Chris, is Docker. And, you know, virtualization is, is no, it ain't no thing. Docker's where you want to be for doing all these kinds of things. And that's what you need to figure out. One step at a time, I think. This is an old boy that needs to learn some new tricks. I'll, I'll have you geek it out again in no time. Anyway, that's a good introduction. Are you going to record the podcast next week on your Mac? Because you're still on your iPad this week. What's your plan? I'm not really planning to change my iPad setup. I'm quite happy with it, and I'm really used to it. So this is how I work all day. I'm not, not changing my work setup. It's the the MacBook is more just for techie stuff, in, in my view. But And I did quite enjoy it. Actually, I did turn off notifications for nearly everything on it because it emails were popping up. I was like, no, actually, I don't, I'm not really using this device for email and stuff. I'm going to turn all that off. I, I want it on there, so I can do it if I want to, but I don't want it binging in the corner every five seconds. So it was quite nice. To, it was quite quite satisfying. Nope, I don't need to see when I get a new email. Thank you very much. I've got my phone and my iPad for that. So maybe uh, we maybe we try that out one week as well, just to see what it's like. Just to see what it's like. Good stuff. All right, well, we'll expect follow-up on that. Moving on, app of the week. To be honest, I'll be come completely clean. I haven't tried this app of the week. It's just one that's caught my eye. It's my homework for the next week is to try it. It's called Essayist. It's one I found on Mastodon. It's particularly designed for academic writing, apparently. I've got quite a, a workflow for writing academic stuff. Clearly, the biggest part of academic stuff is referencing. I use a open source program called Zotero for referencing, which syncs all my various references for all the articles that I want to, to refer to in, in anything I'm writing very well. It's got a, a nice, open, clean way of doing it. It in integrates with Word, it integrates with OpenOffice and LibreOffice. You can make use of it as part of Markdown and other writing and all the rest of it. You know, it's one keyboard shortcut and up it comes. It even will integrate with Google Docs if you want to do that. And you can have proper referencing in whatever style of referencing you want. But this caught my eye as maybe an interesting way of, uh, of writing. It's on the iPad, it's on the Mac. So my intention is to try this next week. So it's not a recommendation to go off and do straight away. I don't know on the surface if it's going to replace what I do now, but I always like to keep my eye open for things that come along. And it implies academic writing, not just essay as in some sort of high school type thing. So I'm, I'm quite keen to give it a go. So links in the show notes, essayist. Uh, do you know what I thought it looked quite a nice app? I had a quick look at it. Yeah, I, d I don't write any articles like you do and, and need to do references, but I thought it looked really nice. So I'd be interested. If I was in your space, I'd want to try it out. Yeah, so I'll feed back on that next week. Have cool. you got a thing of the week? I have got a thing of the week, and it is actually my new MacBook because it's gorgeous. What a nice bit of design. Fair play to the guys and girls that, that came up with this design, shipped it, and it, it's just stunning. I think it's it's nice to see a quality piece of hardware. And it looks like a premium piece of hardware, so fair play. 
I agree. And that, if I can borrow your section, I've actually got a thing of the week this week as well. A 12-minute podcast called More or Less. It's from the BBC. It's called The More or Less and this one, the Behind the Statistics podcast. And this week's one is about errors in Excel that cause massive problems. So the, the, the example that they give is the Office of National Statistics in the UK talking about people's gross domestic product and how things had improved in the course of the pandemic. And they'd added up two columns. They'd referenced an old column, not a new one. So they were talking about it. And they weren't, they were claiming that the UK's workforce had grown something like 19% over the course of the pandemic. Canada's had grown 18%. But actually, when they went back and they realized they'd been referencing the wrong set of columns, it had fallen, shrunk by 2.5%. So I love stuff like this. The fact that so many Syrian science things and, and, and productivity things and actually market reports and comp you know all the things that enterprises do are based on Excel, which is, let's face it, probably the wrong tool for the job. Excel is a tool for accountants, not for scientists to do things on, but we all know so many of them do. So I just thought it's a terrific little podcast. Statistics are very much in my wheelhouse these days. It's 12 minutes well spent. It's worth listening. Yeah, I, I quite like the sound of this. I, it always amazes me, but I shouldn't be amazed that, I don't know what, half the world runs on Excel at this point. It is insane. I work for a big FTSE 250. We run on Excel. Nearly every other FTSE 250 I talk to run on Excel. I would love to meet the inventor of Excel and go, did you realize that 30 years later, the world would be running on Excel? Because we've got all these databases, we invest millions in systems, and yet it all gets exported out and put into Excel to tot it all up or cut the data. I think it is super interesting. It's and again, it's for accountants, and we use it in science. I try not to let any of my lot use it because there's so many things that can go wrong, as evidence in that, and they go into it in more detail in the podcast. Worth a listen to see how scientists who use things like genetics use it, and how the fact they've had to change their practice because of Excel as well. I think Excel descends from VisiCalc, which was what came out in the original IBM PC back in the day, possibly even on the Mac. I forget VisiCalc. I think you're right, but yeah, far too many things are dependent on it, and far too many mission critical things are dependent on it, and. It just it boggles my mind that, you know, I say to somebody, can I have it as a CSV? And they go, huh? which is a comma-separated value file for those of you that aren't particularly geeky. And Excel could open them and, and, and look at them. But yeah, it's, it has its place. And I think if I'm adding up amounts of money, then Excel's the right place. A very quick overview of what's going on with figures, fine. But anything more technical than that, break out your Python, break out your R, use something to actually do your statistics and your planning on would be my, play, my position on that. It makes you worry about how they validate their data, though, at the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, because that's a bit of a worry, isn't it, surely? It's a huge amount of a worry, and I know some of our analysts have gone to work at the ONS, and I know some of their analysts have come to work for us, so I, I have a bit too much inside baseball, and they're all lovely people who work very hard and are very diligent in what they do, but human beings are, are, are make mistakes, and mistakes happen. No, I, I don't disagree with that. We all make mistakes, look, do it all the time, but Surely somebody's got to check your work before you publish it externally. That, that, that'd that be my worry in, in this scenario. I, I, I can only agree. But what I will say is go and listen to the podcast because they say it better than I can. But uh, yeah, it's a good little podcast. Fair enough. Some more homework. Fair enough. Good stuff. I think that's we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think so. We have gone a little long. So uh, you can get in contact with us at Mastodon. We're both on it. Links in the show notes. And if you want to drop us an email, we are wakefromsleep at protonmail.com and we'd love any listener questions. Thank Brilliant. you very much. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, Rob.